So before we get on with today's show, I wanted to explain why we haven't put out something for a really long time and also what's going to happen with the future of the show as we move forward. As some of you will know, we produce our show entirely from scratch. We don't have a producer. We don't have any technical directors. We don't really have like anyone kind of overlooking us. It's really just me and Rohan. As a result, it takes a really long time to make sure that a podcast that we produce is recorded well, is cut really well and comes out really nice and cleanly so that when you guys listen to it, it feels as if it's like a proper radio show. Um, And I do all that production on my own. Uh, Somewhere towards the kind of middle, early part of this year, I ended up like having a lot of things happen at once. And it brought out a lot of like pent up anxiety in me. It meant that all the kind of freelance work I was doing on top of my day job stuff became increasingly difficult to do and became even more difficult to do it to a level that I personally am really happy with. So as a result, I spent a lot of time that I usually spend recording, editing, sorting out interviews, um, trying to recover as best as possible. We talk a lot about mental health on our show and we find that it's a really important thing, especially for groups that are typically overrepresented when it comes to having mental health issues and at the same time having very relatively little access to resources uh, in order to help them deal with their issues. So it sort of hit home for me when all that stuff happened and I realised after trying to push myself and push myself that the priority should have always been my own mental and physical health. So I took some time out to recover. I took some time out to kind of try to look after my body a bit better and also to think about what this show was really about and what its overall mission was. I think the show that we're putting out today is a really good example of the questions that we constantly ask ourselves, um, both me and Rohan, but also conversations between us and you guys, the listeners too. So we hope you really enjoy it and do look out for future episodes that will be coming out in the next few weeks. Um, And also for things ahead, we are planning a big rebrand, we're planning shows with some really good guests, and we might even have a little surprise for you guys towards the end of this year. In the meantime, uh, continue to watch the show and remember to follow us on Twitter. We're at NC4BrownMen, or find us on Facebook just by typing in the title. Thanks very much. Dr. Shashi Farur, he 
um, we've got a very short time with him. Um, this very, very busy man. But we really wanted to interview you um, about your book, The Inglorious Empire. I guess I wanted to start off with not necessarily the book, but kind of the things that led up to it, because this whole conversation, at least from a British Indian perspective, started when you kind of went viral on the internet at the Oxford Union. That's right. So you went viral twice, right? You went viral at the Oxford Union and you went viral when you did the Channel 4 News stuff. And that's absolutely bizarre to kind of think about considering the things that we usually go viral are like cat videos and stuff. <laughs> so like, how, 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 how did that? Well, I mean, the, the Oxford Union thing was a couple of summers ago. I was driving um, past Oxford, as it were, on, on my way to Hair and Wife for the Literature Festival. Yeah. And so when they invited me, I said, sure, I'll do it. Um, and I made the speech. It was a lot of fun, but I frankly um, didn't give it a second thought after I'd left. And then a few weeks later, they posted the video. And when it went viral, I was just flabbergasted. And I, I you know, I, I, I fancied um, myself as a speaker. And I thought, you know, getting a couple hundred thousand views for a, for a speech was not uncommon. But uh, only one of my speeches had had more than a million views. That was something I'd done at uh, the TED Talk some years earlier. And uh, that million had taken a while to build up. But here, suddenly, within 24 hours or 48 hours, it was over 3 million and kept going. So, yeah, I think it captured people's imagination somehow. And um, I was a bit surprised, I'll be honest, when my publisher called me and said, will you make a book out of this? And I said, look, yeah. for God's sake, why bother? Everyone knows the stuff already. Yeah. And he said, no, they don't, because if they did, your speech wouldn't have gone viral. So just before we continue, uh, you're, you're with Hearst? Here it's Hearst, but it was Alia in India who first talked me into oh, doing okay. the book. Okay. And um, and I, I uh, my publisher there, David Davila, used to head Penguin in India, and now has his own imprint called Alif. Um, he's always had very good judgment. Uh, and so I decided to go along with this thing and write the book. Um, and it took me a while to do, but when, I, when the book was published at the end of last year in India and the, at the beginning of this year in England, it certainly does seem to have struck a chord. Yeah. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that um, people seem to uh, be relating to the arguments that I've tried to put across. I'm interested in the reaction between... So from a British perspective, it was a very interesting book because we're in very interesting times right now. Um, and you've probably talked about this before, but you know, just for the sake of like listeners who have just kind of tuned in, this is about Brexit. It's about this idea of what does Britain, the United Kingdom, possibly England become after this all goes. And lots of people kind of look back into our, you know, this mythologized British empire and like the jewel of the British empire, which was India. Um, and in the UK, there's kind of been mixed responses to that because obviously on the one hand, you know, there's lots of new, you know, scholars and academics and students who kind of lead the decolonization movements. Um, but there's also lots of other people who kind of say, well, no, the empire was a good thing. Indians as well. Um, and I sort of wonder what, what what attitudes did you kind of, when you published a book in India, what was kind of the general reaction to well, that? Well, India has been almost unanimously positive. I think the only discordant note has been that I've not given sufficient weight to the reasonable argument made by people of the Dalit caste, the so-called untouchables, that um, in many ways British education enabled uh, them to sort of uh, catalyze their um, objection to their loss in life and in some cases to break free from it. Uh, Dr. Ambedkar, Mahatma Phule were amongst the people who benefited from an initial English system of education and then became major leaders of their community. Uh, to which there are two answers, really, and I certainly do need to acknowledge that a bit more than I do in the book. I mention both of them, but perhaps not enough. 
But I would point out that um, one didn't need the British to come and alert us to the iniquities of untouchability, because even in the princely state of Travancore in Kerala, where the prohibitions were even worse, where there were entire sides of streets that uh, that Dalits couldn't walk on and so on, uh, that an internal reformist movement led by a Dalit who hadn't been to a British school uh, actually succeeded in getting some of those laws changed in the 1860s. So one could argue that Indians are capable of reforming themselves. They didn't need the Brits, but enlightenment took its time to dawn. And the second problem is, of course, that many of the problems of untouchability still linger in many parts of India, particularly in the north and in parts of rural India across the country. And so that it's not as if, thanks to 200 years of British rule, we have shed those practices. In fact, the British were by and large reluctant to interfere in India's social customs. So that, but that's something I do need to say. Otherwise, Indians have been quite receptive. In Britain, it's very interesting. Yeah. I find that the white Britons, by and large, accept my arguments with very good grace, by and large. Yeah. And certainly the reviewers, the writers, for example, there was a wonderful lengthy op-ed by Lord Ridley in the Times. Um, uh, there was a, an op-ed by Gideon Rashman and the FT, yeah. and so on. Um, the kind of uh, English establishment have accepted the legitimacy of my arguments. And the only pushback I've had so far pretty much has come from British Indians <laughs> who seem to somehow want to um, want to justify the fact that they're here and not there yeah. uh, by saying that these people do us a lot of good. Really? That's really interesting. What kind of things have they what kind of things have they said? Can you like is there are there any like stands? Well, I'm, I'm afraid it's all the usual extremely poorly conceived arguments about how yeah. the British gave India political unity and democracy and rule of law and the railways. The railways are a favourite example. Uh, and the English language uh, and all of that. And frankly, in every single case, and I'd add cricket and tea to the mix yeah. myself, yeah. in every single case, these were brought into India for the benefit of the British, either to enhance British control, yeah. advance British rule, or increase British profit. Yeah. That's what they were interested in. Um, and that's really interesting because obviously there's like, you know, a, a quite a sizable amount of British Indians voted to leave the European Union in the referendum. It's quite, it's quite bizarre to really think about. Um, not, and that's kind of is a big disparity compared to like British Pakistanis or British Bangladeshis. Like, and I sort of wonder, from your view, like where do British Indi where do British Indians kind of fit into post-imperial Britain now? Like, that's a big question. It's an interesting question to say. And I remember seeing a wonderful photograph from an anti anti-immigrant protest a few years ago yeah. of a bunch of brown and black Britons holding up signs that said we are here because you were there yeah. which I think is a very useful reminder yeah. to the British people that uh, one of the reasons for the historic patterns of coloured immigration into Britain is the fact that these were um, the, from the these people were from the countries that Britain had once ruled and for whom London therefore was the metropolitan centre. Uh, interestingly enough you know, I was born in London because my father came here as a student um, at the end of the Second World War, um, or 1948 actually, a bit more than the end of the Second World War, and he came here almost in the way in which another Indian from Kerala might have gone to Bombay or Delhi or Calcutta. You go to the big city to make your fortune, to make a living, to enhance your prospects. Um, but he never saw himself as, as wanting to migrate to England. He was, uh, um, you know, he got a start in life, uh, but was looking for opportunities to go back to India. And he was working uh, for an employer, the Statesman newspaper, 
all of his India managers were Englishmen. <laughs> so he waited for an Englishman to retire before he could get a vacancy to go back to India. That's what he did. And I was born here but grew up there. And and, and I identified myself completely with India and not with, um, not therefore with the place of my birth. Do you have a British passport? No, I'm entitled to one, but I've chosen not to exercise that entitlement ever. I, I imagine that's going to become more of a common, common thing. I'm trying to get my Indian passport right now. I have dual Canadian and British citizenship. The only problem with getting an Indian passport for the likes of you is you've got to forfeit the other one. Yeah. You see, uh, some of these countries allow dual, as you've just said, Britain yeah. and Canada. Pakistan, for example, is much more generous with dual citizenship for certain countries. Yeah. India does not accept it. So if you want to become Indian, you have to give up the other completely. And that is um, depends on the kind of life you're leading. If you have a lot of international travel and so on in your life, yeah. and you've got to get a visa everywhere, I'm afraid you may find that an inconvenience. I've been advocating for quite some time yeah. that we allow dual citizenship. I know many Indians with British passports whose heart lies in India. And I know many Indians with Indian passports who are fundamentally disloyal to their land. I don't think a passport is proof of any sort of loyalty, but uh, it is a convenient document. And I'd love to see um, India allowing those who are entitled to two passports to retain their Indianness while having a second passport for their own convenience. I think that's a good segue into something that kind of foreshadows, or not for, but overlooks the book, which is about where India is now. And, you know, in Britain, we might have, you know, some people might have this kind of romanticized idea of like building the empire back. And when Theresa May went to India, there was a lot of conversation about that. And Theresa May's visit to India wasn't particularly good. Um, and a lot of that was down to the fact that India from the outside seems much more confident in itself, much more powerful in terms of negotiating. And now when Britain tries to negotiate new trading contracts, they're going to be on the back foot. Um, and I sort of wonder, you know, from you being in involved in Indian politics, um, but also having like a good international scope as well, what you kind of thought about how the negotiations with the region will be um, after we leave the European Union or in the process of leaving the European Union. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think there's got to be give and take, right? So um, if Britain comes and says, you know, we've got a lot to offer uh, if you give us access to the Indian market for our goods and services, India's going to say, fine, what are you going to give us in return? Yeah. Um, we don't have as much perhaps to sell you. But we do have people who want to come here and study. We want people. We have people who'd like to work here on a temporary basis. We're not talking about immigration. We're talking about work permits and stuff. But when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she tightened up on all of that. And uh, when Theresa May is Prime Minister, if that's the line she's going to follow. The Indians are going to say, well, you know, so why should we give you anything? What are you giving us? Yeah. Because that's really what, you know, Britain is a service economy, right? So its main capital, you know, its main capital is people. And it just strikes me as quite absurd that you know, Brexit is still formally like a very anti-immigrant, you know, it's an anti-immigrant strand. And yet the only way to kind of make a success of Brexit, as Theresa May says, is to actually become more open because that's, you know, that's the only way that, you know, is going to survive. And it's sort of, I don't know, it strikes me as a bit, it just strikes me as a bit strange. And I sort of just wondered what, from an international perspective, or like, what, what do you like young Indians think about all of this? Like when Brexit happened, because, you know, did they- Young Indians were surprised. Yeah. Uh, there's no question about that because of course, the young tend to be more broad-minded and internationalist by and large everywhere. Yeah. And of course we do know now that um, the young in Britain voted overwhelmingly to, to remain. And it was only the older people who have less of a stake perhaps in the long-term prospects of Britain yeah. who voted reflexively to leave. But having said that, um, the young people um, would have, I think, 
uh, been a little unhappy about this for another reason, which is that those who are interested in Britain as an economy uh, also saw Britain as a very useful gateway to Europe. Yeah. And uh, if Britain is no longer a gateway to Europe, that will diminish Britain's appeal. What part of your talk when you were at the Oxford Union and also in the book as well is about how empire is taught and how it's taught in schools. I don't know how it's taught in Indian schools, but I know that in British schools, at least from my experience in the state sector, we didn't really get taught a lot about the empire. Um, we, you know, my first engagement with it was actually in my third year of university doing a history degree, which is sort of very weird story. And if you'd done A-levels in history, you wouldn't have learned a word of colonial history, as I discovered when my book came out in India the same week a Pakistani uh, journalist wrote an article in The Guardian saying that she'd raised two kids, yeah. uh, sent them to one of the best public schools in London, Westminster, and they'd both done A-levels in history and never learned a word of colonial history. But when you read, like, when you read the literature of the 19th and earlier early 20th century there still seems to be a lot of you know you know in particularly like literature that comes out post empire you know public school boys are still being you know still being taught about empire they get taught empire a lot more than like people in the state sector and i sort of wonder um is there like a class you know i sort of wonder what your thoughts were about class and what how class structures affect how you understand well, affect how you understand well i've had a few working class brits raise their hands in my audiences in yeah. britain saying, we got nothing out of empire. Yeah. Your problem is with the British upper class, not with us. And I'm perfectly prepared to accept that. Certainly, Gandhi and Nehru and so on found a very sympathetic reception amongst the British working class. But it's only dropped to a point, because obviously a lot of the British working class were employed in the satanic cotton mills, which um, flourished at the expense of the old Indian textile industry, for example, that was destroyed by the Brits. Um, uh, the working class, um, uh, for example, when Indian ship building was flourishing, um, the British um, working class suffered because the London dockyards were full of unemployed shipwrights and fitters and so on. And the British Parliament passed a law forbidding ships made in India from plying the lucrative London and international routes. And that's one of the reasons why the Indian shipbuilding industry was destroyed in order to protect the British one. So the working class can't be totally exempt from the charge that Britain worked in the interests of Britain. I guess it's more like how you teach it, because if you're teaching empire in public schools, you're teaching it to a certain type of person. Um, One place where empire is taught a lot are in the military academies, Um, Sanford being one of the the, the, the main one in Britain. So there's still like this very militaristic type of perspective when we talk about British imperial history. Um, And how do you like reconcile, because you know, your book sets out a lot of challenges towards the narratives that I think lots of these institutions have held as, you know, the status quo. Um, I guess my, my question is like, what do you hope happens from this book? So when um, there's a writer in America called Tanahasi Coates, and when he wrote his very long and famous article about the destruction of American or um, black Americans and the case for reparations, are you kind of advocating? So he says that we don't want monetary rep- reparations. You want um, something symbolic that at least represents some type of, you know, apology or some type of at least reflection. Are you advocating that as well? Yeah, that's exactly where I come out to send because essentially I believe that reparations in the monetary sense don't make sense only because how do you evaluate the value of the human lives of 35 million people who died in India out of, uh, in totally unnecessary famines because of British policies or the other kinds of damage and destruction that were done or the exploitation, the drainage of resources those days. I think that any amount 
that would be payable would not be credible, and any amount that would be credible would not be payable. So why go down that route? Even in the Oxford debate, which was about reparations, I said that I'd be content with a symbolic one pound a year for the next 200 years, to atone for 200 years. But what I would really say today, and what I have been saying around this book, is that British... The British should atone, and that atonement can take two forms. The first, as you've already pointed out, is just to teach uh, colonial history in the schools, in the state schools as well, so that the convenient historical amnesia of brushing all these sordid realities of how Britain profited from and built itself on the backs of of the colonized peoples um, can be confronted and dealt with, not just when you get to an advanced history degree at university, but right in school. The second thing that I do believe, and I know this is going to be more difficult, but I do believe is necessary, is an apology. I think it can be a one-time apology, and the time is very clear to me. Uh, the centenary of the single worst atrocity of the British Raj, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, comes up on the 13th of April 2019. And I think that uh, if Britain were to look at this uh, with, with an open heart and an open mind, it represents the worst, not because of the numbers of people massacred. In fact, the British massacred 100,000 people in Delhi alone in 1858. Um, but um, uh, uh, everything that preceded accompanied and followed it. That is that the Jallianwala massacre came at the end of the First World War when Britain had broken its promises to move India towards responsible self-government in exchange for India's support in the war. And India's support had been extensive. 1.3 million men under arms fought for Britain. Uh, India supplied treasure, money, food, uniforms, clothing, uh, pack animals, uh, vehicles, carts, even rail lines were shipped out or stripped out of the ground and sent off to help in the war effort. And the total value of India's support to Britain's war effort in the First World War is estimated in today's money at 80 billion pounds sterling, a colossal sum. And in exchange, people like Mahatma Gandhi were led to believe that in exchange for their support, that there would be something like dominion status, which was then enjoyed only by the white Commonwealth countries. Well, it didn't happen. In fact, the British went the other way. They reimposed wartime era restrictions on freedom of expression, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of assembly, and so on, in order to curb any aspirations for responsible self-government. And inevitably, protests broke out across British India. The people of the Punjab were in such a, such a state of ferment that the British sent their soldiers to impose martial law, even if they didn't use those words. And General Dyer showed up in Amritsar to do precisely that. Uh, he um, clamped down on all these public expressions of dissent. But a number of Punjabi peasants from the surrounding areas had come into the city to celebrate Besakhi, the big spring festival. And um, there were men, women, and children assembled together in a walled garden, Jallianwala Bagh, uh, Perhaps also to hear protest speeches, but essentially in a festive spirit, or there wouldn't have been so many women and children there. Uh, Dyer showed up with his troops. He didn't fire a warning shot. He didn't shout a warning. He just opened fire directly on these defenseless, unarmed men, women, and children. And while they were screaming and rushing to the gate, there was only one gate, he had positioned his soldiers there, as he explained himself, so that they would be easier targets to kill. Not even one bullet was wasted. Every single bullet either killed a person or maimed him or her. At the end of the massacre, cold-blooded as it was, he shut the gate and forbade people from offering succor to the dead, the dying, and the wounded. They were left to rot for 24 hours in the hot April sun. 
the um, uh, dire inst instructed Indians to crawl on their bellies on a particular street in Amritsar, and if they so much as lifted their heads, their heads would be bashed in with British staves. And there were various other indignities and humiliations. At the end of all of this, of course, there was public outcry, and there was a, a commission of inquiry which sort of exonerated him. The House of Commons, however, uh, was outraged and condemned him. The House of Lords promptly uh, passed a resolution praising him for having killed all these Indians. And a collection was raised to support him. Uh, the equivalent in today's money of a quarter of a million pounds sterling was given to him together with a bejeweled sword to congratulate him upon the massacre, which he said, of course, he'd be happy to do again. And that flatulent voice of Victorian imperialism, Rudyard Kipling, said he was hailed him as the man who saved India. So that whole thing, the betrayal before the massacre, the brutality of the massacre, the racism that accompanied and followed it, and finally the self-justification and the reward for his cruelty, all of that, to my mind, make this the single worst atrocity of the British Empire in India. And if on the occasion of its centenary, uh, a member of the British royal family, because don't forget, everything was done in the name of the crown, were to come to Amritsar and maybe in silence go on bended knee to seek forgiveness from the Indian people for that atrocity and by extension for all the atrocities over 200 years, it would have a wonderfully cleansing effect, it seems to me. And just, that would be a great act. Of just one question before um, we finish. I wanted to get your thoughts about the current state of India and also populism at the moment. Over in the UK or in the US and in Europe, like we've had our own conversations about what this rise of populism and nationalism um, means and whether that's, you know, it's a reflection of class or whether it's a reflection of something broader. What we tended to forget, especially when um, President Trump was elected, was the fact that populism has been around for a long time and India was a really big example of that. And I sort of wonder what, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on like the current state of Indian politics um, in regards to kind of populism and nationalism and like how much does the stuff that you write about in your book, how much has that influenced the current kind of strand of Indian national politics was not terribly populist, um, especially in the initial decades. Uh, because by populism, you mean the kinds of policies that pander to the worst prejudices yeah. of the voters, uh, tell them that their interests will come first, uh, that foreigners will be unwelcome, all that sort of stuff. Um, then the kind of populism we're seeing today uh, in America is actually not what's going on in India. Uh, you know, I think that there is a lot of bigotry being spread and even uh, condoned by the government of the day in Delhi. But they're not xenophobic. They're actually globalists. They, they want more globalization. They want India to benefit from foreign investment and to do more trade with the outside world. So it's not quite the same phenomenon. Having said that, India um, as a country has its own share of populism, which is, for example, a state government leader. Uh, campaigning on two rupees uh, kilo uh, rice that he would provide to his voters, which would bankrupt the state eventually, but is a kind of populist thing, give people freebies that they will take. Um, uh, in fact, it even came down to one rupee a kilo in some states, which is a couple of pennies. It's really not very much. Um, this kind of populism, uh, economic populism, is quite common. Um, there hasn't been much uh, at all of, of, of xenophobia or resentment of the foreigner. What worries me today is the othering of Indians. That is the tendency to promote a kind of identity politics that makes uh, some of our minorities uh, understandably feel secure, insecure. 
And that's partly because we have now people in power. And I'm not blaming the Prime Minister personally because he can't be reproached for anything he said or done specifically. But that under him, he seems to have condoned a lot of tendencies um, in the country's politics that are deeply dismaying. Um, uh, we shouldn't have a government that presumes to tell Indians what they can eat, how they can dress, uh, what they can read or watch. And there's more and more of that um, on the ascendant. And that troubles me, but I wouldn't use the word populism. And on that note, we're going to cut the episode. Uh, thank you all for listening. Um, if if uh, any of our listeners want to follow your work, what's the best way of doing it? I have a website, www.shashitharoor.in. I'm on Twitter, uh, at Shashitharoor, and Facebook as well, saying just my name. And um, I certainly do, don't hesitate to express my views on all of these things. And I have 16 books out there that I hope people will read, including this one, Inglorious Empire, What the British did to uh, India. Well, I'm looking forward to the next time you go viral, which I imagine will be in the next few months. So until then, uh, have a good day. 